Thank you so much for being here tonight. We are going to be in Esther chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 4. We're kind of at the centerpiece of this story. Um, Every chapter before chapter 4 has been pointing us towards uh, what's going to happen in this chapter. And of course, all the events that are going to take place in the uh, six chapters after this are going to be looking back towards what is going to happen in this chapter. I've been very excited to teach uh, this this lesson tonight. I know um, when Landon gave me the opportunity to do this, and I started a while back, um, so I wrote this message about two months ago, and I was like, I'm really going to enjoy this night, so I've been looking forward to it. So um, we're going to see God's hand at work in this chapter, even though his name is not mentioned, as we've said over and over, we're going to see God's hand at work every step of the way in this chapter. And Esther is going to come to this crisis of belief time in her life, and she's going to have this crossroads type moment where she's going to have to decide, am I going to let the events that are taking place just unfold, or am I going to join God in what he's doing? And so she's going to seek some very drastic measures that will lead to her becoming more faithful to God than she already has been. And so what I don't want us to do is to read chapter 4 like we're going to do tonight. And I don't want us to look and to say, uh, I need to be a hero like Esther. That is one thing that we do not need to do. Um, What God is going to do through Esther is going to be amazing. But God is not calling us to be a hero. God is going to call us to something else. Because God's going to be at play in every step of the way in her life. And God's at play in every step in our life. God is calling us to be faithful. He's calling us to trust Him. He's calling us to obey Him. And then... When those things take place, we can watch God do something truly amazing. And that's our big idea for tonight. Our big idea is we should seek God's direction through fasting and prayer so that we will be found faithful during all seasons of life. Just as a recap, Haman, uh, because Mordecai has decided not to bow down to him, and we looked at that last week, He has put the entire nation, the Jewish nation, under um, a death sentence. He's very angry with Mordecai. He has very distinct plans for Mordecai. But he's also going to have very distinct plans for the entire nation. And so they set up this plan at a certain time to wipe out the entire nation. And and so as we do that, we're going to see right here in chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Mordecai's reaction which leads us to say that we should be more concerned with confessing our fears than with concealing our faith. Confessing our fears than concealing our faith. Let's start reading in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up with the to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, lamenting, 
and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And then Esther called for Hatok, one of the king's eunuchs, which he had, who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. Hatok went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. In the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of their of her people. So all the Jewish people are to be annihilated. Um, hang. Haman, uh, without having to say this again, is very upset with Mordecai. He comes up with a plan to wipe out the Jewish people. And Mordecai in this moment is completely overwhelmed. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. Uh, This wasn't a fashion statement. Uh, This was an outside expression of what was going on inside of, of Mordecai. You can remember the people of Nineveh when Jonah said, In three days time, God is going to wipe you out. In the entire city, they put on sackcloth and ashes and they cry out to God. And this was their way of expressing outwardly what is going on inside of their heart. And this is the same thing that's going on with Mordecai as well as the Jewish people. Mordecai's overwhelmed, he's depressed, he's discouraged, um, and he is being just completely run over by this trial. And not only has he learned his people are about to be destroyed, and what I thought, maybe he was feeling some regret. You know, something inside of me would think, this is my fault. That Haman would say, man, did I mess this up? God, did I miss this? You know, it's kind of one of those Urkel moments. If you've watched the TV show Family Matters, maybe he's sitting there going, did I do that? Right? And... I had That was what I was thinking when I studied this passage. Here's what Brenneman says. He says it like this. There is no indication that Mordecai was sorry for his actions in refusing to bow down to Haman. This would support the idea his actions was based in, on religious conviction. Rather, he is grieving, grieved over the signed fate of, that his people would perish. So he's not thinking this is all my fault. He's not full of regret. Maybe he was, but this text doesn't really point to that. He's really distraught about the fact that his people are under a death sentence. So Esther sends some clothes to Mordecai. Maybe a way of saying, get it together. Quit making a scene. Don't you know, you know, I live in the king's presence. What are you doing? He's going to refuse. No, thank you. I, I need to be in this state. And so he is going to send word back to Esther. He's going to send her a copy of the edict that was written. He's going to inform her. You have to go to the king. You have to go before the king and let him know what's going on. We are in trouble. We need the king's favor in this. We need something to be done. If not, we're all in trouble. 
We're all in a big old mess. And that leads us to point number two, Mordecai's request. What should lead us in return, as we learn about this text, we should encourage others to use their positions of influence for the sake of the kingdom. We should encourage others. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. It says, And Hatok went and told Esther that what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatok and, and commanded him, to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the king, um, goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one in whom the king holds out his golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther's response initially is no this is too risky I know the law I'm married to this man I've seen what he does to people when they come into his presence without permission and she's going to say no you know I took a lot of encouragement from that scripture right there by the fact that Esther probably responded initially the way that she did I think it's very, very common for us, especially in the good old U.S. of A., to be prone not to see what God could do, but what we only see what we are capable of doing ourselves. So initially, she's not going to have faith. She's going to say, no, I don't think so. Mordecai has gone from a position of lament, a position of mourning, and he's going to be to move to a position of stating the truth of what's happening and also stating the truth of what needs to happen in her life. You know, we all need people to speak truth into our lives when we aren't being wise in the ways of God or when we're not having courage the way that we should have courage. We should have people around us. We should surround ourselves with people who will encourage us in those times. And that's exactly what's happened here with Esther. And Mordecai is encouraging her to keep the faith, to stand firm, to remember all that God has done and remember that God is faithful every step of the way. Which leads us to number three, Mordecai's reminder. Because we need people in our lives to encourage us to obey what God has called us to. We need people to encourage us to use our positions of influence We need people to encourage us to obey. Continue reading in verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. One of the most interesting things that I took away from this passage, the more I studied it, is how you see Mordecai go from a place of burden, um, crying out, lamenting, to almost a calmness when he addresses Esther. Our people are about to be taken out. We're about to be wiped out. And he responds with this calm confidence. Mordecai says, okay, listen. Um, 
You can get involved if you want to. You might die, you might not. But God will deliver his people. He's already said that he would. God is faithful. And from verse 1 of being completely out of control mourning to verse 13 being confident in what God had planned. So why the change? What happened between those verses that would lead him to respond in a different manner? You know, I think that his spending time in God's word led to a calmness that he is going to experience even when he's surrounded by complete and total chaos. I believe that Mordecai, as he was lamenting, as he was fasting, I see him reading God's word and just looking at that time and saying, you know what? You have been faithful. Look at what you've done already over and over. And he remembered the stories about how God had been faithful to his people every step of the way. Even when they were in captivity, he remembered how faithful he had been. And so Mordecai stopped and spent time in God's word, spent time in prayer. Even though it doesn't say he spent time in prayer. You know, we talked last week about how those two things kind of go together. I think it reminds him that God is still in control. And every time someone tries to wipe out the Jews, we always have to remember Genesis 12, 3, where it says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I think he remembered that he should just trust God. He should trust God in that moment. He should trust God. Um, he trusted God in his past. He's going to trust God in his future and everything that was taking place. So... The more he takes a step back, the more he spends time in God's word. He gets some perspective on his faith and it just begins to, his faith begins to grow and the trial seems to get smaller and smaller. Huge change. I don't know about you, but I know that when trials happen in my life, uh, sadly enough, I would say I don't respond. You know, in chapter four, you read that and you're like, man, that happened really quick. Um, I don't think I respond that quickly when trials happen in my life and when things... I used, to be honest, I usually respond by throwing a fit, right? But in studying the book of Esther, I realized that when those times happen, we should repent. Because I let something else shake my faith and my trust in Jesus. I let something else outside of God and outside of um, my faith in Him be shaken because of those trials that we're going through. And so I have to remind myself that I need to repent. He's always been faithful, even when I don't understand it. I want you to think about the 12 spies. I put some really cheesy VBS uh, drawings up on the screen, but I think it's a great picture of the 12 spies. They go into the promised land. Ten come back and say, there are giants we are like grasshoppers to these guys. There's no way we can take this land. Two guys says, no, God's given us the land. They are big, but our God is bigger. We'll know that they have to take a little stroll a little while to get to work a little faith into them, to get a little courage, right? But I want you to also think about David and Goliath and how the entire Hebrew army was shaking in their armor as they looked at Goliath. No one had the courage to take a stand. And yet a small shepherd boy walks up, a, a little boy who loves the Lord with all of his heart, and the law of the Lord is his delight. 
And he's going to look at that giant and says, you know what? He's not too big to defeat. He's too big to miss. It's just a little how you look at that and how you look at the situation that you're facing that will determine how we react in those times. David chooses to believe what is true about God and his word rather than what he could see with his own eyes. He did not let the trial become bigger than his God. When we get to that moment, we have to choose to respond in faith. For such a time as this, this moment, this is why you were born. Your parents dying when you were young. You being taken care of by your cousin. You being beautiful. You becoming queen. God has been directing your steps every step of the way. And that's what Mordecai says to her. For such a time as this. All of us who have trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we've placed our faith and our trust in Him, um, we need to understand that we are given generic orders and we are given specific orders. Generic orders are what you would find in um, Matthew 28 when the Bible tells us to go and make disciples. This is a general order. If you are a part of God's team, guess what? That is part of your job. Um, when you see in Acts chapter 1, I want you to go and to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's what you're supposed to do. General orders. All of us get to do this. We all have very specific orders as well. And these are the orders that God has given us that apply to our talents and our abilities and where on earth he has placed you. He gives us very specific orders as well. And as a believer in Jesus, God is giving us different tasks, very specific orders. I want you to think about in the book of Acts, uh, Ananias. And as he encounters a guy named Saul, um, Saul comes to him blind. And we don't know a whole lot about Ananias, but we do know that God used him to disciple Saul, who would eventually become Paul, um, to write, and this guy would eventually write many of the words that we read um, on Sunday mornings all the time, or read in our quiet time in our Bibles. We didn't, he didn't save his people from annihilation, but we know that God put a specific task in front of him, and he was faithful to do that. Even though at first he was kind of like, I don't know about this, right? What about Lois and Eunice? Grandmother and mother, we don't know much about them, but I think one of the specific tasks that they were given in life was to equip and disciple and to pour God's word into a young man by the name of Timothy, and who would grow up to be a great leader in God's church, in, in, the, in the church. So these two women, quietly, he had, a, he had a Gentile dad, he had a Greek father, and these two women poured God's word into this young man in such a way that he was used in the church in a mighty way. We don't know what our specific orders are. Normally, we don't know until we are walking in daily faithfulness to God. That's when we find out what our specific orders are. It comes from daily, faithfully walking with God. I don't think Esther was walking down the aisle to be wed to Xerxes. And she thought to herself, man, God is sending me to save my people. That's what, that's what he's doing. No, it was a daily walk. Walking with God, being faithful to God, no matter the situation. 
And then the situation happens, and she knew what her purpose was. She was faithful when her parents died. She was faithful when she was raised by other family members. She was faithful when she won this quote-unquote beauty pageant and became queen. She was even faithful after she became queen. Even when you look at that moment and think, if there was any time for her to just take it easy and guide and just coast into the sunset, it would have been that. But she remained faithful to God. She was set up to fulfill what God was doing in her life because of her faithfulness to him. And when such a time as this arrived, we're going to see that she's counted faithful to do that. You know, I know there are a lot of people in this world today and they're trying to figure out what's God's purpose for my life. You can go to any Christian bookstore and the bestsellers list. You'll see lots of uh, books on how to find meaning and finding your purpose and what to do. Um, Can I just give you the key to finding it tonight? Just be faithful. Be faithful to God. So many people get paralyzed with um, trying to figure out what they should do. Be faithful. Do what God has asked you to do. And then when that happens, watch God do something through you. If, if you're working in a career, be the best. If you're a student, be the best student that you can be. But be faithful to God in those moments. God will reveal to you the specific things that he has, up for, has set for your life. We have to obey. Obey. Mordecai re, uh, reminds her, look at what God has done. Look at what God is doing. Look how faithful he has been to you. And maybe, just maybe, you have come to this moment in your life for such a time as this. But Esther had a choice. So let's look at Esther and Mordecai's resolve. Which leads us to say that we should seek God's power through fasting and praying so that we will be found faithful rather than fearful. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not drink or drink, uh, eat or drink for three days, nights or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is so important for us to remember because I don't think most of us will ever have an Esther-type moment happen in our life. I don't think that we will, um, most of us will ever have to put our life on the line for the salvation of a whole nation of people. Um, But these moments of faith are very significant. Daily obedience. I love what Esther tells them. She tells them to go and fast, to fast and to pray. And she's going to tell them, I'm going to do this, and if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. Obeying God always involves sacrifice. Uh, Esther shows us by asking them to fast that she didn't just place her trust in her beauty or her title or how eloquent she was or how much the king liked her. She's showing her willingness to fast that she was placing her trust in God alone. Prime says this about fasting and praying. It says, praying is the principal purpose of fasting. And 
in that fasting concentrates the mind and helps to detach it from current preoccupations. Fasting, therefore, is a way of abstaining from what may interfere with prayer. It is an expression of earnestness and recognition of the seriousness of the situation, expressing either sorrow or repentance. Fasting isn't a hunger strike to try to bend God's will to our own. I know a lot of people that do that. They say, I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray for this specific thing. Instead of praying for God's will, they just pray, so I'm going to selfishly, I'm going to pray for this. Fasting isn't a way to impress God. If you're trying to impress God because you're fasting, you're going about it with the wrong attitude. The root of fasting stems from, as John Piper calls it, a hunger of the homesickness for God. Here's his quote. We will do anything and go without anything if by any means we might protect ourselves from the deadness effect of innocent delights and preserve the sweet longings for our homesickness for God. What a great quote. Our homesickness for God. We have to be willing to obey God even when it costs us something. To put ourselves out there to do the right thing even if it's detrimental to us. Are you doing what God has called you to do? Or are you shrinking back in fear when life happens? Two questions you need to ask yourself. Number one, what is dictating your life? Is it the truth of God's word? Or is it the trial that you're facing? I think for a lot of people, it's the trial. Some of us are stuck right in the middle of a trial, right in the middle of something, and it's just running us over. Um, it's our focus day and night. Uh, trust me, I've been in many of those types of moments, and it's your focus day and night. It even causes us to be angry with God, to not trust God the way that we should. Maybe it drives a wedge in between you and the Lord. The trial has become completely all-consuming. You know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to fast. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to seek the Lord. Even when you don't understand, lay it down at His feet and trust Him. He always has a plan that's much better than our own. Second question is, are you fulfilling your purpose? Right now, where God has placed you, where you are at, are you being obedient to God right now? Even when it's hard, even when it hurts, are you trusting Him? God always blesses those who are obedient to Him. You know, every, I, I found it true that everyone wants God's blessing, but you don't find a whole lot of people that want to be obedient in every aspect of life. In the big moments, in the little moments, God is always faithful. Will you choose to be obedient in both situations? And the greatest reason why we should be faithful is that God's people needed and need a mediator. God's people needed a mediator in Esther's day, and we also need a mediator as well. When you look at this story, what God's people needed in this story was a mediator. They needed someone who could go to the king on their behalf. Someone who was able to go into his presence and to plead on behalf of the nation. 
God had put Esther in this place for such a time as this. You know, when we hear that, it should make us think about another story. In another time, when all of us are facing annihilation. When all of us are under the sentence of death. Because there is a king, the king of kings, who is holy, holy, holy. And because of our sin, we are separated from him. And we cannot come into his presence because sin has no place in his presence. Left to ourselves, we have no hope. Our sentence is death. We needed someone to go to the king on our behalf. Someone who would argue our case. Someone who would bring salvation to us. Guess what? We get that in Jesus. The true mediator between God and man, who in the fullness of time stepped out of heaven, put on flesh, and appeared to the world. He took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. As 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, there is one mediator, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And for him, if I perish, I perish, um, meant not just the probability of death, but the absolute certainty of the cross. Thankfully, by his wounds we are healed. 